Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, I have brand new reporting on how Trump is beefing up his legal team as he's bracing for another potential indictment from the special counsel. I'll share that scoop in a moment. And stunning new details on the U.S. soldier believed to be detained in North Korea tonight after crossing the heavily fortified demilitarized zone. A witness says she saw him bolt across the border, and you're going to hear her account. Plus, the music video that is rocking the world of country music and beyond. Why Jason Aldean's chart topper was pulled by country music television. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Good evening. We start tonight with that breaking news on how Trump is adding more firepower to his legal team as he is bracing for a potential another indictment from the special counsel. Of course, as we know, Trump shocked the world when he announced yesterday he had gotten that target letter from Jack Smith's team. And now I have learned that he has quietly added a new criminal defense attorney in recent weeks to his team. I'm told that John Morrow, a former federal prosecutor turned white collar attorney, is going to be joining that team, that team that is focused on what could be an indictment in the coming days. He will be focused on the January 6th investigation. And of course, that comes after last month when Trump was indicted in the documents case, two of his key attorneys departed his team, one of them who was very familiar with the January 6th investigation. Now Trump is adding a new person to that team, of course, as they are trying to figure out more about that potential indictment. What evidence does Jack Smith have? What witnesses has he spoken to that Trump and his team are unaware of? Of course, I should note John Laro is someone who was part of that group that was reaching out to others in Trump's orbit, attempting to find out who else may have gotten a target letter. I should note that as we came to air tonight here at 9 o'clock Eastern, so far they have not uncovered anyone else who has also gotten a target letter in the January 6th probe. Meanwhile, that grand jury that is hearing evidence is expected to hear more from other witnesses tomorrow, one going back for his third visit before the grand jury. We have learned that Trump's team has been asking around to see about those other potential witnesses, that other potential evidence, as they are trying to learn more, embracing for another indictment potentially. As we know, Donald Trump has until tomorrow night, given that target letter, to answer that. But sources say it is highly doubtful that he would accept an offer to testify himself. After that, his legal team is going to be on indictment watch. Tonight, they are already bracing for it. All of this is coming as we are now learning what kind of charges Trump might be facing. This is included in that target letter that he got. According to multiple news outlets, there are three federal statutes that are included in the letter that Trump's team got on Sunday night. Deprivation of rights, conspiracy to commit an offense or defraud the United States, and witness tampering. Serious crimes and historic times. Let's bring in someone who was once in that inner circle of Trump's. And joining me now is the former national security advisor to Donald Trump, John Bolton. Ambassador, thank you for being here tonight. What do you make of the fact that the former president and your former boss is on the verge of potentially being indicted in this case? 
Well, we haven't uh, seen the indictment yet, although I, I agree it certainly looks like one is coming almost any day. We don't know the exact scope of it, uh, which could have a big influence. But I have to say, this being the third indictment, not having seen a real political uh, impact uh, negative to Trump on the first two, in fact, if anything, it helped bolster his stature with uh, with supporters, a third indictment or even a fourth indictment, I don't think uh, is going to change that much politically. I think the single most important question now on the legal side is whether any of these cases uh, actually get to trial before the 2024 election. That That's what's going to be important, not this indictment or that indictment or the next indictment, which, which case, if any, gets to trial and does he get convicted? Yeah, and we saw his attorneys in court for the documents investigation this week essentially arguing that if they do have the, the court, the case, that it should be from mid-November of next year on. I mean, do you think it's fair for, for voters to go to the polls to cast their votes if they don't know what the outcome of that trial or these trials potentially could be? No, I mean, I think the clear consideration, any defendant is entitled to, to time to prepare his defense. But, but, you know, as they say, justice delayed is justice denied. If Trump really wanted justice, he'd be saying, I want to go to trial as soon as possible and uh, remove this cloud from over my candidacy. That's obviously not what he wants to do. I happen to think his attorneys in the documents case made a substantial mistake by putting, uh, by putting it fairly directly to the judge, they don't want the case before the election. That shows the, the real strategy, and when you think about it, it is shocking. Now, it may be difficult uh, to have a kind of traffic jam here with all these cases, but I think it's uh, part of the court's duty to make sure that the public interest is served as well. The defendant has a legitimate interest in time to prepare uh, mm -hmm. his or her defense. But I do think in this case, giving special privileges to somebody just because they're a candidate for president is not consistent with the notion of one law for all. One avenue that we know from our reporting that Jack Smith has been pushing and pursuing is this idea that Trump knew that he lost the election. I mean, is it clear to you that he did at that time? Well, I think that's the central difficulty with what may come from the January 6th investigation. It's why I personally think it's the documents case that's the most important. Uh, uh, Trump will have a lot of ways to say, I thought I had a legitimate reason to believe that the election had been stolen. Uh, the, the, there, there will be witnesses who will say, well, we told him that, it was, uh, that he lost and he, he wouldn't accept it. But there were other people. Uh, maybe crazy people, but they were telling him it had been stolen. So I think the intent issue here is is difficult, and and I think that's where the the uh, focus of Trump's defense will be. Yeah, and I know you said back in August of 2020 that you had concerns about the way Trump was talking about the election. You know, saying the only way he could lose is if it was rigged. But what you just said there is important. You're talking about the people who were around Trump and what they were telling them. You know, we've talked about this team normal versus team crazy. Uh, do you expect that, that Sidney Powell, the Rudy Giuliani, the John Eastmans, that those attorneys should be indicted in this case? Well, they could well be. I mean, I think the key witnesses here could be people like Rudy Giuliani uh, or Mark Meadows, to whom Trump may really have said uh, something that's, that's very hard for him to dodge, really showing that he lost. I mean, he said a lot of things uh, in, in the nature of, uh, how could I lose to, to that uh, fill-in-the-blank bozo Joe Biden? Uh, and some people said, see, that, that shows he knew he lost. I, I think he could easily argue it shows the opposite, that of course he couldn't lose to that bozo Joe Biden, therefore it must have been stolen. Uh, 
and I think the worst outcome in any of these cases from the public interest point of view of keeping Trump from becoming president again is that he's acquitted or gets a hung jury because that fits directly into his argument that these cases were all political he's being persecuted uh, so a lot a lot rides on this I'm sure Jack Smith understands that but uh, a win here could shake up this election uh, an acquittal or a hung jury could give Trump the Republican nomination for sure in my view and might winning the election Speaker Kevin McCarthy, you know, after January 6th said that Trump bears responsibility for what happened that day, he is now saying that he doesn't think Trump has any criminal culpability. He told my colleague Melanie Zanona, I don't see how he could be found criminally responsible for what happened on January 6th for those efforts to overturn the election. Do you get, disagree with that? Well, it depends on what this indictment says. I mean, I think the better thing for Republican leaders to be saying, if they say anything, is this case is now in the criminal justice process, and I'm not going to comment on it. That, that's, that was the tradition in American politics. It was a good tradition. We ought to go back to it. I think from the, what, what has been reported about the uh, target letter that Trump received on Sunday was that uh, I could see an indictment here that doesn't deal with January the 6th at all, as many people have commented. And it could be part of Smith's strategy to kind of separate the case into, into different indictments. I mean, we'll, we'll know soon enough, I think. When you ever worked for him, did you ever think that it, it would be a, a situation like this where he's you know, been twice indicted now, maybe thrice indicted? Well, I think it's, uh, I, I just felt that, that his desire to, to take advantage of the judicial system, uh, in, in my book I, I referred to it as obstruction of justice as a way of life, uh, he, he did, it wasn't that he played close to the edge, he did acknowledge there were edges uh, that were limits to what he could do, and uh, it was probably only a matter of time uh, that that he did something that could could result in an actual criminal trial but again the the equities here uh, a prosecutor has to decide and and i think many of trump's critics of whom i'm obviously one miss the point it's not impeachment that stops him it's not indictment that stops him it's conviction if you impeach him and you fail to convict you don't constrain him, you empower him. If you indict him here and fail to convict, you could elect him president again. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you for your time tonight. For more on what we are learning about the special counsel's investigation, I want to bring in one of the most foremost experts in election law, Republican Attorney Ben Ginsburg. He also testified, I should note, as an expert before the House January 6th Congressional Committee. Thank you so much uh, for being here. When I mean, you look at this and you hear this reporting about these three statutes that are allegedly cited in this letter, you know, if that is what Trump is ultimately charged with, which one do you think is the most important? Well, it really depends on what the facts that Jack Smith presents are. In other words, if this is a case where there is a broad conspiracy with lots of information that we don't know yet, then any of the three could be serious. I think the deprivation of rights count uh, is probably the most interesting because that could, in effect, open up a discussion the, the proof that Trump would have to make that his charges of rigged elections were actually true. Uh, and it would be uh, a worthwhile exercise for the American people to actually hear if Donald Trump can make that case. 
Well, that statute was also stood out to me because the other two we kind of knew about that they, they could be an option. That's what the January 6th committee actually recommended to the Justice Department. But the one you're talking about was one that was enacted, you know, after um, the Civil War. And essentially, as the New York Times sums this up tonight, it was to provide a tool for federal agents to go after KKK members who engaged in terrorism. But what they say the modern usage of it could look like is essentially Trump facing prosecution on accusations of trying to rig the election himself. Yes, and that that goes to what uh, you were talking about earlier uh, with Ambassador Bolton, which is his intent. Uh, not only it's his intent, it's the knowledge that he had and what he was told. Remember that there were 64 court cases after the election. He lost all of them. Uh, 14 of them never got to, were dismissed on procedural grounds. 14 he voluntarily dismissed. Over 30 actually were hearings on the merits, and he couldn't prove uh, the fraud that he said in any of those cases. So if it now comes back to his intent, there could be a thorough examination of what he knew and whether there is any validity at all to the, the charges that our elections are rigged. And obviously, Jack Smith has been able to do a lot more because the power of his subpoena packs a lot more punch than the the congressional committee. How much more evidence do you think do you think he has been able to get than the January sixth committee was? Well, a couple of hints on that. First of all, the documents case uh, when it produced showed a far more in depth investigation uh, than anyone had seen coming. Secondly, uh, you, you saw the January sixth committee report and the number of witnesses who did not talk to them, who managed to stiff arm a congressional committee uh, and not give uh, information. What's interesting is that Jack Smith has been able to talk to all those people, and there are a series of court decisions we know about in which attempts to invoke either executive privilege or attorney-client privilege have been rejected by the courts. So you know from that that Jack Smith has been able to gather far more evidence than the January 6th committee was able to. Yeah. I mean, Mike Pence, for example, so many of these officials, you know, and you have always been outspoken about the state of democracy and preserving it. You know, we have kind of seen a preview of what Trump's defense here could look like. He's he said things like he has the right to question the election. Obviously, he he did a lot more than that. He tried to overturn the election. In your view, how big of a moment is this Is this for the country in preserving that democracy? Uh, I, I think it's a huge moment. Look, we are in a more precarious situation as a, as a country than we've been in a long time. We are uh, a very polarized country. That's happened before. But the number of people in this country who doubt the veracity and reliability of our elections is at an all-time high. And now you've got an indicted former president running for office in an election in which he claimed is rigged. That is, under any definition of it, a toxic mix. And so Jack Smith's ability to be able to to lay out facts that we haven't seen yet and the theory of what Donald Trump may have done to stand in the way of the will of the people in the election is a huge moment for the country. Ben Ginsburg, a huge moment for the country. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Also, we have breaking news tonight here. Russia is targeting the port city of Odessa in southern Ukraine. It's the third night in a row that they have been barding 
them. Our Ukraine's armed forces recording at least eight Russian aircraft flying in the direction of the Black Sea. Of course, this comes just days after they terminated that grain deal. We will be there live on the ground in just a moment. Also, just weeks away from the first presidential debate, some Republican candidates are still scrambling to make the stage, including names that might surprise you. Donald Trump has not committed to taking the stage, and the head of the Republican National Committee has advice for him tonight. We are a little more than five weeks away from the first Republican debate in Wisconsin. What is that debate stage going to look like? A reminder, of course, the Republican National Committee sets criteria for candidates to qualify. That means all of them likely won't be up there. Right now, the current frontrunner, Donald Trump, would easily meet those requirements. But so far, he has said he is not planning on showing up in Milwaukee for that first debate. The chair of the Republican National Committee says she thinks that's a mistake. I think he should be on the stage. I want everybody on the stage that qualifies. I think it's a mistake to not do the debates, but that's going to be up to him and his campaign. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, I should note, tonight was asking New Hampshire voters to donate a dollar to his campaign because he is yet to qualify for that stage. Joining me now, Kristen Soltis-Anderson and Van Jones. I mean, what do you think that debate stage is shaping up to look like? Because we've got this new poll out of New Hampshire today among likely primary voters, Trump's at 37 percent, Ron DeSantis at 23, Tim Scott at 8, and then you've got Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, and the others. We know Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy have so far qualified to make the debate stage, they say. I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting. I don't know how crowded it will be, though, once you factor in that all of these folks have to get a certain number of small-dollar donors, and the polling criteria are a little bit unusual as a pollster. Um, it's not 100% clear to me exactly which polls will count for the qualification standards. But nevertheless, I think that Donald Trump would be making a mistake to sit out this debate. We know he's done it before. In 2016, one of the debates he sat out, counter-programmed, made his own show. But I think he is going to want to have the opportunity to prove that he's better than Ron DeSantis. I don't think he'll be able to let that get, go by. But what do you make of the RNC chair having to to kind of go on Fox, obviously a channel she knows he watches, and... And beg. <laughs> your word, please, but yeah. Please, baby, Urge please. Urge him to come on. Please, baby, please. I think it's kind of pathetic. Um, but, you know, uh, Donald Trump does what he wants to do. Uh, I think he's making a mistake because uh, somebody else could do something extraordinary. Uh, I'm, uh, Tim Scott is a really compelling figure. Uh, he's a unifier. Uh, if he doesn't have to sit there and you know, dodge you know, uh, we- weird nicknames from Donald Trump, he could break through. And once somebody breaks through, you, you can get a snowball going. Remember, Barack Obama was down uh, in the numbers and stuff. So uh, I think it's a mistake, but I just think it's, uh, this is like, you've got this uh, big uh, toddler who's like uh, the size of a skyscraper just wandering around the Republican Party doing whatever he wants to, and you've got the RNC chair behind saying, please, please sit down, please eat your piece. It's not going to work. He'll do whatever he wants to do. And Tim Scott, of course, we should note his super PAC has a ton of money. Kristen, Trump was on Fox last night talking about something that he is at odds with, with people like the RNC chair and other mainstream Republicans in his party over when it comes to early voting. He said this about it. Bad things happen to those ballots also. They're sent in early, and all of a sudden, where are they? Look, we have very corrupt elections. He's criticizing early voting as 
people in the RNC are trying to, they're rolling out an early voting program. They believe that the Democrats are better at early voting than they are. It's one thing to say, I wish we would go back to the pre-pandemic way we did elections, where there was less early voting, less absentee voting. But there's also the reality that we're in, which is that Mail-in voting, early voting, absentee voting, these have been expanded and that is largely here to stay. And so you have to run in the world that exists. You have to run an election in reality. And if Republicans bail on early voting, they bail on absentee voting, where in some states like Florida, they have actually had advantages for a while, they are leaving votes on the table. It is tactically disastrous do if Republicans not, abandon. Do not listen to this woman, Republicans. <laughs> listen to Donald Trump. Don't vote early. <laughs> Please be quiet. So one time I agree with Donald Trump. Republicans don't vote early. In fact. I mean, it's the Donald Trump and Kerry Lake effect. They're the ones yeah. who are, are discouraging it. But I want to ask about something else. This is something that the White House is kind of, you know, sitting back and laughing at. It was something that President Biden tweeted this video saying he fully endorsed it. And while it was surprising, it's because it's of Marjorie Taylor Greene in a speech she gave where she thought she was criticizing President Biden, but he used it as an endorsement, essentially. Joe Biden had the largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started that LBJ expanded on and Joe Biden is attempting to complete. Hooray! <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, that you could not get a better endorsement than that in our party. Uh, she's talking about people who are beloved, you know, FDR. That's literally who Biden wanted to grow up and be and thinks he is becoming. So, but it just shows how different uh, the world is. For a Republican Party, apparently, uh, FDR, who saved us in World War II, who rebuilt the country, who uh, got us out of the Great Depression, is some kind of villain. Uh, it gives you a sense of how par far apart the parties are. But I think it's very, very smart. Somebody uh, in the Biden campaign was paying attention and has a great sense of humor. I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, he, she's... She's saying he took out of context that she posted the full clip of her comments. She's criticizing his spending and, and programs. But, well, one, it's a sign of how polarized we are today, right? That the very thing that one side of the political aisle thinks is obviously negative can so easily be viewed as a positive to the other side. But the thing that I think really stuck out to me was when this video dropped, it's very much for those who are online, who really know immediately who Marjorie Taylor Greene is, they get why this is funny, was, is this an AI thing? We live in strange times where that's a question you have to ask. Because we've seen people <laughs> using AI in yeah. their ads. Thank you both. Thank you. Also, we have breaking news tonight. What I mentioned a second ago, the Ukrainian port city of Odessa is being bombarded right now as Ukraine's president is accusing Moscow of trying to cripple their ability to export grain. We'll take you live there to the ground next. Plus, we have new details tonight on that U.S. soldier that is believed to be held in North Korea. There is now an eyewitness who watched him go across the demilitarized zone. The question is why? We have breaking news out of Ukraine as Russia is bombarding the southern port city of Odessa for the third night in a row. You can see this extraordinary video just in from CNN's team. It shows Ukraine's air defense working to repel these Russian attacks. CNN's Alex Marquardt joins me live from Odessa. Alex, what are you? What have you been seeing on the ground as this is the third night in a row that we know this has happened? And, and is there a sense of what kind of weaponry that Russia is using here? 
This was a city that was already on edge after two nights of extraordinarily intense, ferocious attacks uh, by Russia. This city wondering whether uh, it would happen for a third night in a row. That answer coming just before 2 a.m. with an attack that lasted around an hour and 45 minutes, arguably the most intense yet in terms of the weaponry that we saw on display tonight. Uh, it did start the same way that the last two nights have with uh, air raid sirens warning citizens of this city that an attack was coming. Then we started to see uh, those red tracer uh, rounds from the air defenses firing up into the sky, lighting up the night sky, looking for drones to take down. Uh, there were spotlights that were searching for drones. We saw interceptor rockets taking off with and, and, and presumably hitting uh, things because there were huge explosions in the sky uh, that cast this huge glow all across this city uh, that eventually went dark, all of the lights being turned off, presumably uh, for security reasons. But the reason that this does appear to have been more intense tonight was because of the variety of cruise missiles, at least three different kinds of cruise missiles uh, Russia used, including the, the much-feared Kinzhal missile, which has a warhead of one ton. Uh, we know that Russia sent up uh, at least eight long-range supersonic strategic bombers to fire these cruise missiles. And then very notably, uh, we know that in all of these attacks, drones were used, but this was the first time uh, that we heard these drones uh, so close. They sound like uh, huge mosquitoes flying, flying very close to the buildings. What the targets were, what the damage was, that we don't know. The sun is just coming up. Uh, but I think it is fair to say uh, that these last three nights have represented the most serious, most intense attacks uh, on Odessa since this war began last year. Alex Caitlin. Marquardt, please stay safe and thank you. Also tonight, there is possible proof of life of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Of course, the Wagner leader, there is a grainy telegram video that appears to show him alive and well, greeting soldiers in Belarus. I should note tonight that CNN has not independently confirmed that this is indeed Prigozhin, but if so, it would be the first time that he has been seen in public since he led that attempted mutiny against the Russian military nearly a month ago. The whole saga still has Western intelligence officials scratching their heads over how it happened and how he's still alive. Even Britain's spy chief, Richard Moore, the head of MI6, who I should note rarely speaks out in public and certainly not as candidly as he did today, said he was stumped. Brigosian started off, I think, as a traitor at breakfast. Uh, he had been pardoned by supper, and then a few days later he was invited for tea. So there are some things, Anne, that even the chief of MI6 finds it a little bit difficult to try and interpret in terms of who's in and who's out. CNN's Oren Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us tonight. I mean, Oren, when I heard that comment, it just kind of stunned me to hear the head of the MI6 saying that they're even a little baffled by it, and they're still trying to sort out the idea that of what happened that day and the fact that he's alive right now. Of course, and that's part of the mystery of all of this, and where does Evgeny Prigozhin stand now? Normally in Vladimir Putin's Russia, if you present a challenge to Putin or, or present too much uh, disapproval of the decisions he made, you find yourself somewhere on the spectrum from complete obscurity to inevitable defenestration. And yet, Prigozhin doesn't seem to be on that spectrum. The question is, where exactly is he? He presented possibly the greatest challenge to Putin's rule in his in entire time in the Kremlin, and he was essentially moved out, right? He's no longer in charge of, of Wagner, or at least not as he was. He's not leading his forces in Bakhmut. The relationship between Wagner forces in Africa and Prigozhin right now is also unclear. 
And yet, if this video is to be believed and CNN teams have geolocated to a base outside of Minsk, the question isn't Prigozhin remains open, but if this video is to be believed, he clearly has at least some of his forces and safe haven in Belarus. It's also worth noting that the head of MI6 said Putin had to make this deal with Prigozhin to save his own skin, and that, Caitlin, in and of itself is very telling. Yeah, what do they say? Uh, don't drink the tea in Russia or in Lieberman. <laughs> Thank you. We're also learning new details tonight on the Army Private Travis King, who is the U.S. soldier that bolted into North Korea on Tuesday, catching the world off guard and those who were there. An eyewitness who was at the demilitarized zone, this is a tour that was ongoing, watched as he dashed across the line, catching both U.S. and South Korean service members who were there off guard. Is this guy doing it for a TikTok stunt or something really, really stupid like that? But he, he didn't stop. There were South Korean and US soldiers um, around us. I heard one of the American soldiers shout, get him. And then a bunch of them ran after him. But he was going so fast and we were so close to the border that um, he was gone by then. Joining me now is Sumi Terry, a former North Korean analyst for the CIA. I mean, this whole saga is fascinating, I think. I should note some background that he had been accused of assault twice last year. He had been held in a South Korean jail. He was due to be removed or separated, as they were saying, from the U.S. Army. I mean, what is what do you make of everything? I mean, it is very bizarre because I think when you look at the history, you have a lot of North Korean defectors, but you don't have American defectors. So there's five or six cases in the past. So it is very bizarre. It looks like he got into a lot of trouble, as you mentioned, in South Korea. He cursed out a police officer. He vandalized some cars. He hit, he assaulted a South Korean citizen. And he was supposed to be sent back. And from Incheon Airport, he didn't get on that flight and made it straight to the DMZ. And so it's very intentional that he intended to run to North Korea. But he didn't want to come back to the United States, I guess. What is he facing, though, in North Korea? I mean, yeah, I think some people would rightly say it's bizarre that he would prefer to go there than to return to the United States. It's a gigantic prison. North Korea is a prison of 25 million people. So I think I'm sure he's regretting it right now. But it's very uncertain what his future holds because he defected. So it's not like North Koreans are the ones who are detaining an American citizen, like Otto Warmbier. Um, this is a case where American defected. So we'll see what the North Koreans do. The problem is US and, U.S. and North Korea are at an impasse right now. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation. Since the failure of the Hanoi summit and then COVID years, there has been no conversation between the Americans and the North Koreans. And I think that might surprise people, given just how much Trump was meeting with Kim Jong-un, and they did have that summit in Vietnam. There has been no contact between the Biden administration and North Korea. They're not responding to the Biden administration. So what do they do in this situation? I think North Koreans are going to take their time, right? So as you mentioned, since all that summitry and diplomacy of 2018, 2019, that summitry, that diplomacy have completely collapsed. And if you remember, North Koreans have been just diversifying and modernizing and expanding their nuclear missile arsenal. There are some 70 ballistic missile tests last year, some over 30 missile tests this year. There's no talk. And North Koreans might be like, you know, we're not interested in having a conversation. They might not respond. Could they try to use them as a pawn? Potentially, but North Koreans might also say we're not in, to show that they're not interested in coming back to dialogue and just keep this guy. Sumi Terry, we'll be tracking all of this. Uh, of course, your expertise on this is invaluable, so thank you. Thank you.
Ahead tonight, two IRS whistleblowers have gone public with their testimony, first time at a hearing focused on Hunter Biden, one whose name was just revealed. Republicans claim the president's son got special treatment from the Justice Department. We'll show you what Democrats on the committee said as well. For the first time publicly, a second IRS whistleblower revealed his identity today in front of the House Oversight Committee, talking about the criminal probe into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Joseph Ziegler has worked for the IRS for 13 years as a special agent with the Criminal Investigation Division and claims that he believes the case was ultimately mishandled. He was joined at that hearing by another IRS whistleblower that we've already heard from, Gary Shapley. As Republicans are arguing that these two credible witnesses, they say, Concerns should not be ignored. I watched United States Attorney Weiss tell a room full of senior FBI and IRS senior leaders on October 7th, 2022, that he was not the deciding person on whether char- charges were filed. That was my red line. I had already seen a pattern of preferential treatment and obstruction. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. Attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials, as well as other U.S. attorneys. I should note, the U.S. attorney that they are referring to was appointed by the former president, Donald Trump, and has defended his decision to let Hunter Biden plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and a felony gun charge. David Weiss has insisted that he had the ultimate authority on what those charges would have looked like for Hunter Biden. The top Democrat on the committee called out his Republican colleagues. But one thing you will not hear today is any evidence of wrongdoing by President Joe Biden or his administration. Like every other try by our colleagues to concoct a scandal about President Biden, this one is a complete and total bust. Here to break down today's hearing, my colleague, John Miller. John, you obviously have a background in law enforcement. What Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat, was trying to say there basically was this is just tug of war between investigators and prosecutors and nothing more than that. What do you think? Well, I mean, the problem here is, Caitlin, that the very reason the Justice Department appointed David Weiss to this job was he was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who they left in place along the idea that whatever decision he came to would not be questioned on political grounds because he's a Donald Trump appointee who theoretically would have been calling it down the middle. Um, I've worked with the IRS criminal division before on cases. Um, They are very good, very thorough. And these two agents are very credible when they give their testimony and their background of the cases they've worked on. The issue is, as you framed it, You know, you put together your best case and then prosecutors will look at it and say, but I actually have to prove that. I have to go through a messy trial. It's going to be politically charged. There's going to be accusations about everybody's motives. Um, Can I get the government paid back and get a guilty plea? The IRS loves to prosecute famous people. We know that from all the big name cases we've seen. Hunter Biden would fit into that category. Um, But the ones who pay up and plead guilty uh, before a trial often get a deal like this. But what's the difference in a Hunter Biden and and what is happening here versus those other big names that you've talked about? Is there a difference in how much they owed and what essentially they were going after them for? So let's baseline those. Um, You know, Wesley Snipes or um, Nicholas Gage or Willie Nelson. These were cases that involved millions and millions of dollars, not just in income. In Nick Gage's case, uh, I think he was evading taxes on $70 million, but it's millions of dollars in owed taxes. 
um, even with the agent's testimony today, you were talking about $100,000 here, $150,000 there. So far below that line. Now, Martha Stewart went to jail for $200,000, but it was attached to an insider trading case where she lied to the SEC. Wesley Snipes went to jail for much bigger numbers. Um, you know, Willie Nelson and Nick Cage made deals to pay. So this fits kind of underneath those as a lesser case um, with a less famous name, but a politically charged case, which is why, as we saw today, it's messy. Yeah, and well, it's not the end of it because Gary Shapley is negotiating to go before the Senate now and testify as well. John Miller, thanks for watching that and breaking it down for us. Thanks. He is one of country music's biggest stars. His new song was topping the charts, but Jason Aldean's music video has just been pulled from the country music channel. The controversy explained ahead. Country music star Jason Aldean is pushing back tonight against critics after his music video for the song Try That in a Small Town was pulled off of country music television. Around here we take care. That video and its lyrics getting backlash, in part because it was, one, filmed at the site of a 1927 lynching in Columbia, Tennessee. Aldean did not address the location in his pushback, but he is defending the lyrics that critics say are racist and encourage vigilante behavior. Aldean responded, and I'm quoting him now, there is not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it. Try that in a small town, for me, refers to the feeling of a community that I had growing up, where we took care of our neighbors, regardless of differences or background or belief. Joining me now tonight is Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones, who, of course, last joined me back in April when you were famously expelled and then reinstated after he led a gun control protest on the House floor in Tennessee after six people were killed at a school shooting in Nashville. Representative, thank you for being here with us again tonight. You know, Jason Aldean, as I noted, is defending this video, but I wonder what your reaction was when you heard the song and saw the video. Yes, well, thank you so much again for having me, Caitlin. Um, as a Tennessee lawmaker, as the youngest black lawmaker in our state, I felt like we had an obligation and a duty to condemn this heinous, vile, racist song that is really about um, harkening back to days past. There's no accident that he filmed this in the site um, of the Murray County Courthouse where the uh, race riot happened, and where as well as the 1927 lynching of a young man who was 18 years old um, Henry Choate occurred. Um, this song is about normalizing racist violence, vigilantism, and white nationalism. And it's, it's about glorifying um, a South that we are moving forward from and that we're trying to move forward from here in Tennessee. And Aldine, obviously, he didn't write the song, but clearly sings it. And, you know, for some of the lyrics, we were looking at them earlier. One of them uh, is, uh, cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. We'll try that in a small town. Are those the lyrics that, that you're referencing? Those lyrics and the lyric that says, see how far you make it down the road. I mean, this is a lynching anthem. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anthem that reminds me of the stories of young men like Trayvon Martin, of Ralph Yarl, 
um, you know, young men, Ahmaud Arbery, who were killed by vigil white vigilantes. I mean, this song is not about um, small towns, because if it was about small towns, where was Jason Aldean when this, the Murray County people were fighting for their clean water? Where was he when where hospitals in these small towns were closing? Where was he when people in these communities were suffering from starvation wages? Nowhere to be found, but instead he comes to sing a song that harkens back to division, that harkens back to fear of outsiders, this racist um, violence that led my grandparents to leave um, these small towns, fleeing Jim Crow terrorism. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is something that we must condemn because if we normalize ra this racist, violent rhetoric, then we normalize racist, violent actions. And we cannot allow that because we see what's happening in this nation. Um, I was expelled challenging gun violence. This song is about this proliferation of guns in our communities, of, of violence, of taking things into our own hands when we feel threatened by people because they're different than us. I mean, this is shameful and we must condemn it. What do you make of, of how he noted, I mean, Jason Aldean, for those who don't remember, was, was obviously per performing at that festival in Las Vegas when a gunman opened fire and killed 58 people. It was the deadliest mass shooting in American history. And he said in response, quote, no one, including me, wants to continue to see senseless headlines or, or families ripped apart. I mean, do you think that that rings true when you listen to the song? I mean, when I listen to the song, I hear this normalization of gun extremism. We are a state that has been plagued by mass shootings just this year, Covenant you know, Elementary School. This is not about bringing us together, but it's about lifting up division and fear of, of neighbor. Um, this is not about caring for each other. Um, you know, it, it's very shameful that this is what he chose to offer in light of what we saw this year. Um, in Murray County, where he performed this song, just last week, the KKK left flyers in front of black churches. I mean, let's, let's be honest about what this is about. And so we must be truthful to condemn this, we, about the proliferation of guns in our community. Our vision is a new South, a South where we care for each other, where we uplift um, the beloved community, where we lift up a community where our kids are protected and not, you know, guns. And so this is not about ending violence. This song is about promoting violence, normalizing violence, particularly white vigilante violence. And Jason Aldean should be ashamed of himself for promoting this song that, that seeks um, our darkest history instead of our better angels in this nation. Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. We have an update on the Alabama senator who is single-handedly blocking hundreds of military promotions. You heard from here, here last week. Tommy Tuberville says he's had several conversations with the defense secretary about his concerns. But did he let up today when the opportunity presented itself? I'll tell you next. Tonight, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville once again held up military nominations, even after a conversation that he had yesterday with the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, which had seemed to go well, was described as cordial. Senator Tuberville, who complained on this show last week about a lack of contact from the White House or the Pentagon, has now spoken with the Defense Secretary twice, I should note, but it hasn't changed his mind. There was no offer of a compromise. It's their way or the highway. Senator Tuberville has shown no sign, as he alludes to there, of letting up and affirmed that he plans to, quote, stick with it. Thanks for joining us tonight so much. Seen in primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. Laura, a lot of news going on. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.